0: How can activism transcend beyond consumerism? Why do we need to be weary of philanthropic capitalism? And how can we self-heal through burnout? Big questions that we're deep diving into with Kamea Shane, writer, author, and host of the Green Dreamer podcast, exploring holistic healing, ecological regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. It's time to live wide awake. Hey, it's Steph Dixon and welcome to the Live Wide Awake podcast. This is a podcast about climate change and consciousness, sustainability and spirituality. Each week, a special concoction for your listening pleasure so that you can lead your most conscious life. We're gonna be talking about fascinating yet sometime complicated topics and breaking them down into digestible chunks so that we can live wide awake. If you haven't already, do hit that subscribe button. And if you love what you're hearing, consider supporting us on Patreon. Kamiya Shane is a creative writer and the author of Thrive, an environmentally conscious lifestyle guide to better health and true wealth. She's also the host of one of the most successful sustainability podcasts, Green Dreamer. She's known for her perceptive commentary and nuanced questioning, and she's interviewed over 300 sustainability, social justice, and public health fault leaders, including Dr. Van de Shiva, Charles Einstein, Adrian Grenier, New York Times bestselling authors, and many more. In this episode, we discuss how to have healthy skepticism and maintaining a critical eye in the sustainability movement, self-healing as part of collective healing, activism beyond conscious consumerism, and earth as the most advanced technology. Kamea, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. I've been a huge fan of yours for years and massive fan of your podcast, so really looking forward to diving into our conversation today.
1: Thank you. Super excited to be here.
0: In 2018, you launched that podcast, which is, you've had over 300 episodes, which is incredible, uh, with thought leaders from around the world. So what was your journey like before you started that? And I mean, you know, what really led you to start the podcast and what's it been like and how's it evolved since?
1: Yeah. So to give a brief background, um, I'm a third culture kid. So I was born and raised in Taiwan and growing up in a city, I didn't really have access to the great outdoors. Although I did get to travel quite a bit growing up, and otherwise it was really through watching things like National Geographic and Discovery Channel and things like that that really intrigued me and got me interested in all the wonders out there that our beautiful Earth offers So that got me interested. And then just learning things about how species are going extinct, all of that just didn't sound right to me. So in high school, I had the opportunity to volunteer at the sea turtle conservation program in Osino, Costa Rica, and then um, also the panda conservation program in China. And these experiences kind of solidified my passion Although I would say that I didn't really understand the full extent of what was wrong. It was just more so like, oh, these species are endangered. So like you can experience what the work is like being at the front lines, doing this research work and caring for the animals and things like that. So at university, I studied psychology, environmental studies and marketing. So I further deepened my understanding of sustainability through my minor and at the same time, I was really interested in fashion, just being a college student and having a lot of social events to go to. So I was personally hooked onto fast fashion for quite a bit until I picked up this book called Ecologist's Guide to Fashion. And that was definitely a pivotal moment for me because it bridged my two biggest passions at that point, which was fashion and sustainability. And I started connecting the dots to seeing how my individual choices were directly affecting these greater issues that I really cared about. So yeah, fast forward, and we might talk about this later too, but initially when I came out of school, I became a blogger of conscious consumerism and um, sustainable fashion and things like that for a few years until I deepened my knowledge to see how systemic things are and suddenly felt really overwhelmed by the immensity of all the interconnected social and ecological issues that I was learning about. And for a brief period, I definitely felt overwhelmed and kind of in a state of helplessness and hopelessness, as I think a lot of people in this space can relate to. So yeah, I started realizing that I always felt most activated when I was learning about what other people were working on with their own unique backgrounds and talents and expertise and interests. And at the same time, I was also listening to more and more podcasts. And I just loved the format for really being able to learn wherever I was. So whether I was making breakfast or commuting and just really appreciated the format as a more intimate way for me to constantly be learning. So then I took the two ideas together and was like, oh, maybe I should start a podcast and you know talk to people who are on the front lines and who are doing really incredible things in their fields. And hopefully be able to inspire myself, but also a lot of other people who like me were feeling that sense of doom and gloom and uncertainty of how they can contribute in their own ways. So yeah, that's kind of the impetus in terms of what led me to start Green Dreamer podcast. And what's it been
0: like since you've launched and you've done those 300 episodes? How has it sort of evolved and how I guess has your understanding evolved? Because as you said, you know, you started really looking at conscious consumerism and then along the way you sort of reframed your approach to activism. So maybe you can share a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah. So I don't think there was one moment when things really changed. I think it was just every single conversation that I have, I'm Learning a little more, and then I'm connecting more dots. I'm connecting different issues and seeing the parallels between different issues. So I feel like every conversation just like deepened my knowledge more and more and more. One of the big themes that I notice retrospectively is that I have really gone beyond my initial focus on conscious consumerism because. So basically, when I was in college, I took an environmental policy course where I learned about the iron triangle. And that's just it basically explains how difficult it is to change policy and to change environmental policy because you have the. You have corporate interests and you have legislators and you have bureaucracy that kind of create this iron triangle that locks the system into place because they have Mm -hmm. mutualistic relationships with each other where they're really supporting the interests of one another. So it makes it very hard for policies to reflect the everyday people's interests and, of course, the interests of our planet. So when I learned that, I was like, we need change now and we can't wait forever for policy change. So that was what initially led me to conscious consumerism, because I was like, you know, we all make choices every single day. And um, and therefore we have the power to uh, shift our behaviors and our consumer choices in order to um, try to change the landscape, at least through the marketplace. So that's the path that I went down initially But as you dive or as I dove deeper and deeper into it, I started to see how systemic a lot of our injustices are, including our environmental injustice. So, for example, a lot of uh, choices that we have are often predetermined by our access or economic, economic privilege that we have within this system. So then the saying to vote with your dollar, I mean, that definitely has merit to it. Like people who can't afford to should definitely spend our dollars wisely. But by putting this forward as the way of engaging with activism, it really just amplifies and reveals the deeper injustices as in who can actually engage with activism in this way because not everyone has even access to supermarkets if they live in a place that deals with food apartheid or food deserts. And if they do have access to these locations, they might not have the economic privilege to buy the more expensive thing. Um, So yeah, that's kind of what led me to see how we're on this path where our wealth disparity is increasing at an accelerating rate, especially with the pandemic, which means that the people at the bottom often are forced to buy food and items that were you know mass produced and cheaply made from these big industries that are driving destruction and have been able to make their products so make their products so cheap because they're exploiting labor and exploiting resources So it's kind of like injustice feeds into injustice, which is accelerating all of our problems right now. And this is all systemic and we can't really buy our ways out of this mess. So it's very complex and which, you know, just really humbled me and showed me that there's so much more that I need to learn in terms of how this all works and comes together and how it is that we can make the biggest difference as individuals in this space.
0: Mm. And so, for someone listening, that's like, okay, well, I thought my dollar mattered, and it does to a certain degree. But then, what am I supposed to do in the the face of these systemic oppressions and complexities? You know, what where can we actually play, and where should we be focusing our time and energy? Then,
1: yeah. So when it comes to driving systemic change, I think people often pose it as a false dichotomy of um you know is individual change more important or is systemic change more important and a lot of people think that systemic change is has to come through politics and also a lot of people think that individual change is like what you buy and your lifestyle but individuals can engage with systemic change through organized and collective efforts so for example direct action or getting behind some sort of organized campaign that is pressuring a large corporation to pay their workers and things like that. So there are ways that we as individuals can engage with these organized um, efforts going on and grassroots organizing. So that's certainly one way. And in terms of how uh, we have this trend of accelerating wealth disparity and the centralization of power and monetary resources right now, This trend directly works against sustainability and social justice. So when we're thinking about justice and sustainability, that requires a decentralization of power and economic resources, which means that there's two ways to go about decentralizing power. One is confronting power and one is building power from the ground up. So the ways that I mentioned earlier, you know, direct action and, you know, grassroots organizing in terms of pressure campaigns against corporations. That's kind of the first approach, which is addressing those in power. Um, And if we look to history, the key pivotal moments of social change have always come about through people's movements. So they haven't really come about from uh, individual politicians feeling nice and (laughs) deciding to do a lot for the people. They've always come through mass people's movements, forcing those changes. So that's the first part. And in terms of building power from the ground up, we're, re- we're really looking at uh, efforts of community building and things like supporting food sovereignty or localizing our food systems and ensuring that currently disempowered communities can hopefully one day build food sovereignty so that they're able to meet their own basic needs of feeding themselves. Because when you rebuild food sovereignty, uh, it empowers people to this place where they no longer have to accept being exploited and any form of um, relationship that these communities build with other people, with other corporations and et cetera, they can actually come from a place of collaboration rather than being forced to accept some sort of exploitive job opportunity that's there because it's the only thing you have available and you have to make even if it's like scraps or less than minimum wage, just to um, put food on the table. If people are able to meet their basic needs of food, water, and shelter, then people have a lot more leverage in deciding what they are okay with and what they're not okay with. So yeah, those are kind of the two broad categories. So one is organizing against those in power. And the second one is supporting community building efforts and regenerative and restorative efforts from the ground up. Mm, Thank you so much. I
0: think that's really clear. And I guess it comes back to this concept of our collective efforts and actions are are really where, where we have the leverage and really where we can actually start to shift things on a really big scale. And I think that's when people can find and discover that actually, yes, my actions matter, because I think sometimes people get lost in like, oh, I'm just one person. You know, what can I really do about it? But actually, all those people add up together to be something that can do something about it, you know? And I think that's that's an important thing for us to remember that it does it does matter what we do and where we're putting our energy and attention.
1: I don't want to dismiss conscious consumerism. So I think certainly our activism should transcend and go beyond that. But of course, with these little things that people are capable of doing, if people have the privilege to engage with conscious consumerism and support independent makers and artisan work and brands that are really helping to preserve traditional craft and culture and etc. cetera, they, we should absolutely do so. But yeah, just in terms of what is it that can really transform our society, I think we have to go beyond that to look to efforts that are more collective. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of
0: sense. It's the next wave in the journey. And I think as more people move through it, then they'll start to understand that more and see the bigger roles that we can play. And so I just wanted to kind of zoom in a little bit more on what you're talking about, because a lot of the work you've been sharing recently talks about sustainability as as a movement being fractured and how our systems are actually designed to exploit and extract. And then you also talk a lot about environmentalism actually creating injustices. So I wondered if you could sort of hone in a little bit deeper so that we can understand how the system really is designed this way.
1: Yeah, so when we're talking about the system being exploitive and extractive, we're really talking about the capitalistic economic system, as in this system has been set up in a way that's predicated on endless economic growth. And if it doesn't grow, then people are going to go out of jobs or people's livelihoods are going to be negatively affected because in this system, people are reliant on jobs in order to meet their basic needs. But Even when the economy is, quote unquote, growing, at least in the U.S., although this is also true globally, wealth disparity is still on the rise, along with economic growth being on the rise. So economic growth does not equate with improved livelihoods for the average person and for the majority. And the gains of economic growth primarily made possible through the exploitation of labor, of the working class people, and through the exploitation of resources as well, all these gains are disproportionately going to people and corporations at the very top. So yeah, that's what I mean when I say that we're kind of locked into a system of injustice, uh, because this is what the system incentivizes. And even if we're talking about the solutions coming out of this current system right now, While research funding disproportionately goes into solutions that are scalable and even patentable with a potential return on investment for the companies and people investing and putting the dollars into these forms of research. And then, of course, whatever they end up innovating through this R&D, the corporations backing these developments also have more money to build relationships with the press and Spend a lot of money on PR and marketing to make the headlines, which then skews the media landscape in favor of stories that they push and through like the advertising world as well. So people generally have a, I would say, like a skewed understanding of where our solutions lie, because this leads to a disproportionate hype for things like carbon capture or patented lab grown meats or you know, these a lot of these techno fixes to our problems and what gets overlooked are really indigenous and place based solutions. So, for example, we know that indigenous peoples make up 6% of our global population, but steward 80% of Earth's biodiversity. And that to me just says everything because biodiversity Mm. is integral to while addressing our sixth mass extinction, but also biodiverse and healthy ecosystems are integral for healthy carbon cycles and water cycles that regulate the climate. So yeah, so what gets overlooked are solutions like this, where it's kind of inappropriate to see them as investment opportunities, because when we're talking about restoring and healing and giving back, sometimes those things should not inherently be extractive. So this is just an example of how even the best solutions coming out of this current extractive system, they're still looking for ways to extract from these solutions. When we're talking about things like impact investing and proven solutions such as indigenous land stewardship largely are sidelined. And so on a related note, in terms of environmental solutions that I've been driving injustice, one example of this is the Sangwer forest people in Kenya are actively being displaced and bullied and their houses literally burned down by a corrupt forest service in the name of carbon offsetting schemes. So they're getting a lot of pressure from the World Bank and international players to set up these carbon offsetting schemes, primarily for corporations and people in the West that want to offset their emissions in order to feel better about the more consumptive lifestyles and and practices. So yeah, what we're not seeing is that sometimes in the name of environmentalism, indigenous peoples are being displaced from their lands for these carbon offsetting schemes and of course there's a lot of nuance there are some where indigenous peoples have been able to conserve their lands because they've worked through carbon offsetting schemes and they're ones where they've been displaced and harmed by it so i don't want to paint a broad stroke because there's a lot of nuance in it but for people that do want to engage with sustainability in this way it's just really important to know that not everything that has been labeled green or sustainable or climate friendly ultimately is entirely positive. So we have to keep staying critical and, and curious about everything. Yeah. I guess uh, this
0: is where it gets really complicated for people and it gets so confusing as well to try and navigate through and actually understand. Okay. So what, actually is happening in the world like what can we trust there's just so many opinions is what i'm basically saying and and so you know exactly what you've just said you know sometimes it really works and the indigenous peoples were able to work with the corporations to preserve their land but also be part of the carbon offsetting and other times they're being offset and so it's just so confusing so how do you think we can really navigate through to find the truth or to remain critical without being I guess negative or jaded and just
1: perpetually disappointed in the system. <laughs> I think I'm pretty cynical at this point, just, you know, learning how corrupt a lot of people with power are. And I think it's healthy to have some level of skepticism of everything so that we can look at everything with a critical eye and to not take anything at face value. And in terms of navigating it, I think it's really just about asking more questions and not automatically trusting what people are saying, even a lot of these certifications coming out, like there's fraud in a lot of these certifications. So even that you can't really trust at face value. So for example, with the USDA organic, I know there are struggles with a lot of organic farmers who are leading the charge to make sure that hydroponically grown foods cannot achieve the USDA organic certification because it does not help to restore soil health and it does not work with the land. But it's like a billion dollar industry with hydroponics and they have a lot of power. So, so far, at least, even though organic elsewhere globally in Europe and elsewhere, hydroponics are not allowed in the US, it is allowed. And so a lot of consumers don't know that. And a lot of consumers also don't know that KFOs or factory farmed meats can still be organic if their feed is organic. So there's a lot of things like that that a lot of people don't really know about even the certifications that are supposed to help us navigate this consumer consumerist world, this conscious consumerist world. So we just have to keep asking questions and especially with information coming out of the media and with info overload, it's really important to Also be curious and critical about the sources and who they're getting their information from, who they're being sponsored by, who they're being paid, who has paid them, and just, you know, who these people are, what are their stances, who have they worked for before? Like, all these questions are important to raise so that we can better calibrate the information that we're receiving to know whether they might be aligned with us or whether we have to take things with more grains of salt than other sources of information. So just we have to keep sharpening our critical thinking skills. Absolutely. And just doing the research and, as you said, asking the questions. And
0: I guess this brings us nicely to talking about billionaires (laughs) and why it's problematic that they're now trying to be climate leaders, in a sense. And I read this one quote that you had on your Instagram that said, quote, Earth has been doing R&D for billions of years, and they're the most advanced technology out there. I'm really not interested in what Bill Gates has to say about climate solutions, end quote. I really couldn't agree with you more. I mean, (laughs) just thinking about Earth doing its own R&D, it's just a beautiful concept. And yeah, so really like, you know, let's talk about billionaires and how they are now being or positioning themselves kind of as climate leaders. And just also on the flip side, do you see a benefit of them bringing potentially a new audience as in their followers or, or their fanboys around the world into this climate conversation who maybe weren't part of it before?
1: Yeah. So what really motivated me to put out that post was because Bill Gates recently published a new book about climate solutions and he's been giving a lot of talks and interviews around it. And I haven't read the book, so I won't pretend that I have, although like from the interviews, you can expect that. What he talks about is a lot of these techno fixes to addressing the climate crisis and if you just look at the sorts of things that he invests in a lot of them are also things like geoengineering even things like sun ray deflecting technologies things that really scare me and i think are really distractions and faux solutions to healing our planet so I mean, just billionaires in general, they do not become billionaires without exploiting labor and resources and the work of other people. And they don't build their empires as one person earning a salary. They they earn they become billionaires through exploitation of other people's labor and, and Earth's resources. So. Yeah, just I don't think they should be positioned as climate leaders because of the destruction that they've caused our planet and to people and and their roles in accelerating systemic injustice as well. So even though a lot of them do a lot of philanthropy and will donate you know, millions of dollars to whatever, maybe environmental causes even. I think it's important to contextualize that with the amount of destruction that they've also caused. So, you know, donating one million dollars to environmental organizations doesn't mean anything if they've contributed to 100 million dollars worth of destruction and land degradation and Exploitation, So it's really important to contextualize that and not just be like, oh, well, they've donated so much money, so they must be, you know, doing a lot of good. And if we're just talking about Bill Gates, for example, he has a nonprofit, Agra, that is pushing the green revolution into Africa. And essentially, this is getting farmers to be reliant on agrochemicals. And we know, you know how that plays out. But essentially, by having farmers become reliant on seeds from these seed giants and agrochemicals. What that's doing is it's it's disempowering these communities and making them less food sovereign and more reliant on these big food giants and agrochemical companies who are then sucking the resources out of these communities. So yeah, even when we're just talking about philanthropy from the billionaires, it's important to Understand that through the lens of what's called philanthrocapitalism, capitalism, as in they could be doing some sort of charity work that could be setting the stage for some sort of for profit innovation or other companies that they have investments in to be able to, you know, take advantage of the situation, if that makes any sense. just. Philanthropy isn't all good. There are a lot of problems with the nonprofit industrial complex and philanthropy work in general. So, yeah, there's a lot more to unpack there. But in terms of whether there could be a good from billionaires lending their influence and publicity to these environmental issues like climate change, there's, of course, always nuance. So there definitely it definitely is possible that their influence will get more people into these conversations. But at the same time, if these people are listening to the billionaires because they really trust them and respect them and now they're like, oh, we should talk about climate change because Bill Gates is talking about it. And if they're then listening to Bill Gates talk about where our solutions lie, as in these techno fixes that don't actually heal soils and heal lands and heal communities, then they're probably going to go on to also support those solutions pushed by the billionaires. So the caveat is it might add to the crowd of people that are supporting these faux solutions like carbon capture and um, sun ray (laughs) deflecting geoengineering technologies and drive more money and funding and investments into those spaces. So there's definitely a positive in terms of raising awareness and publicity, but also some negatives in terms of further skewing the landscape in driving funding into these places and away from place-based decentralized and indigenous led solutions
0: Mm, very very valid points and so do you think there is a place for these types of solutions there? I mean, I know you're saying that they're faux, faux techno solutions, but do you think that they do actually provide any value in the grand scheme of things? Or do you really think that we all need to be pushing for uh, the points that you raised earlier about decentralization and regenerative uh, solutions? And how, if, if that is the answer, then how can we really do that when now all these billionaires are coming out with these kind of uh, conversations, which are... Yeah. They have a lot of influence and a lot of money to back that up.
1: Yeah. In terms of whether there's a place for things like techno fixes, I'm hugely skeptical. I mean, if we just look a little bit into our history, every time there's a techno fix for some problem, what usually ends up happening is they create a whole new set of issues that then have to be um, dealt with later on. And if we're talking about technology in general, Or even things like renewable energy and quote unquote clean energy that doesn't come out of thin air and they have to be manufactured and they require the mining of rare earth metals. And that process is hugely toxic and polluting to the communities. Um, It requires converting land and deforestation and sometimes blowing up mountaintops to um, to set the stage for open pit mines and things like that. So. Even things like renewable energy that people are seeing as the solution to the climate crisis, there's a lot of environmental harm and harm to mining communities that is coming from this quote unquote green energy transition. So anything that involves technology and these giant infrastructures, that's going to have some sort of ecological harm because they rely on still finite resources, still polluting extractive processes, still polluting water and air for communities that are in the proximity of these sites. So my take on technofixes in general is that there are certainly maybe some cases where they could help provide immediate resources to communities in need. So again, I don't want to paint a broad stroke, but generally speaking when we're talking about healing our lands, I don't think we should focus on things that would require more extraction to to suppress and address the symptom of the climate crisis, which could be CO2 levels. So if you're looking at CO2 levels and excess CO2 levels as a symptom, and you're seeing carbon capture as a way to mitigate this symptom, then you're not addressing the deeper root causes of ecological breakdown that's breaking our carbon cycles and making our lands incapable of regenerating themselves and sequestering carbon in that way. So I think- If we really want to heal our planet, it's about restoring and regenerating ecosystems. And it's about extracting less and not extracting more. That's my take on it. And I forget if you had a second part to that question. I mean, I think you've answered it. That's great.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I guess this is a really sad thing. You know, we have like the earth has everything that we need even to as you say sequester carbon out of the atmosphere but we're just destroying all those natural ecosystems and extracting all of the resources to then create more problems and it's just like this vicious cycle but i think the machine is so big and it's running so fast i mean how how are we really going to be able to stop it in our lifetimes I, I, do you have hope in, in that sense or i mean i know you said you were quite skeptical and cynical at the stage but yeah do you think we're going to see
1: turnarounds and shifts within our lifetime I don't know if we're going to see this sort of deep systemic change within our lifetime, although it's certainly possible that we get to a point where the climate crisis is hugely causing disaster and forcing change because we can either embrace change and sort of lighten the blow from the harms and pains that will come through such a large systemic shift Or if things keep going as is, we're gonna be forced to change at a certain point, just out of the biology and physics and conditions of the world forcing us to change. And if Mm -hmm. we get to that point, it's not going to be pretty. There will be a lot of struggle and a lot of pain and a lot of violence. And the current system is already violent against the land and against a lot of people. So yeah, I don't think change will ever come about easily. And where I find my hope is really in community based projects and projects of healing and restoration and regeneration, because a lot of people are working on these things in the midst of all these, you know, heavy issues that are happening right now. A lot of people are working on community building and working on food sovereignty to ensure that they can feed their communities so that they don't have to keep being forced to make choices that further empower the system and they can really meet their own basic needs and not really cut themselves off entirely, but at least not need to buy cheap food and cheap products from the system, which further empowers it, for example. Um, So, yeah, that's where I find my source of hope is looking to people at the front lines who are organizing against projects of extraction or otherwise organizing in support of Collective healing and regeneration,
0: mm.
1: and so I wanted to
0: touch a little bit on burnout because I think the last six to twelve months has been particularly exhausting for so many people uh, around the world, and especially I've seen a lot of people in the activism space as well. And I've been absolutely exhausted and definitely experienced it. and still kind of trying to recover a little bit, to be honest. And so how did you sort of realize, because you also spoke about the fact that you'd hit a burnout at the end of last year. So how did you realize that you sort of hit that and what have you been doing to recover and to sort of heal
1: out of it? Yeah, this is so relatable. Yeah. So I definitely burned myself out towards the end of 2020 and I think I realized that when I started slowing down. So over the holidays, I took a week or so off from my regular schedule of working and I had to spend the holidays alone um, here in California because most of my family's in Taiwan and I just couldn't travel back and have to quarantine for two weeks because it just it didn't make sense. So I had to spend it by myself and it was definitely lonely and kind of depressing to have to do that while seeing all my friends with their families and loved ones and things like that. So that definitely affected me emotionally and mentally. And then just I think sometimes you don't realize how tired you are until you stop and slow down and then everything comes crashing down and it hits you. So I think Mm -hmm. that's what happened to me is I took one week off my regular routine and slowed down and then as i needed to pick things back up again i just couldn't i just couldn't get back into the flow of things i was super drained emotionally exhausted physically feeling frail because i'd realized that a lot of times when i when i work for example i'll work through my lunch hours and then be super hungry in the afternoon so i just a lot of times i wasn't really mindful of taking care of my personal health through the work that i was doing and certainly 2020 was a year of emotional roller coaster with everything that was happening politically and all of that stuff. So, yeah, I think everything just came crashing down on me over the winter holiday. And I realized that I needed to take some time to focus on healing myself. So, I allowed myself to disconnect from social media and the internet a lot more throughout the month of January. I barely posted anything to socials. And I definitely made sure that I nourished my body with um, nutritious food and I was more active in taking my dogs out on walks every morning, although I'm kind of losing that routine now again. So I need to keep that going and pick that back up and certainly just having more time to sit and not physically do anything or to be scrolling through my phone to just do nothing. And we're so trained into thinking that we have to be productive all the time, but when we slow down and literally do nothing, that is sort of productive in a different sense that we forget about. So it's productive in healing our minds and bodies. It's productive in maybe sparking some sort of creativity or creative inspirations that we wouldn't otherwise have gotten if we didn't have those quiet moments to ourselves, And so, yeah, I just took a lot more time and allowed myself to go against what the dominant culture tells me to do, which is that I need to do things faster and be more productive and get more things done, or otherwise I should be ashamed of myself or feel guilt over that. So, yeah, that's what I've been doing. And I would say that really helped me. And now I'm just trying to integrate those practices into my regular routine so I can keep it going and not burn out again. (laughs) soon at least.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I really resonate with the slowing down and being way more intentional about, yeah, the work and what you say yes to. And also, yeah, I think you really clearly explained that sometimes when you're resting, it's actually a different way of being productive because you have to look after your mental health and you have to look after yourself. Otherwise, you're going to be in a perpetual cycle of burning out. And so I definitely really resonated with that. And so I think this personal healing journey that people go on, it really does help to heal the collective. And I know you've kind of, I think I read a post that you mentioned that a little bit as well. So can you sort of explain how you think that works in terms of, yeah, our healing also healing on a collective level?
1: Yeah. So I think in the environmental space, a lot of people still hold a worldview of separation that people talk about If we want to, quote unquote, save the planet, then we need to lessen our impact. And by default, people use human impact to mean that it's negative. But that fundamentally comes from a place of separation, because if we understand humans to be an integral part of Earth and that we are a part of this Earth body, then it becomes, you know, we have a role to play. And we just need to remember our roles and remember what it means to be regenerative as one part of Earth. As most other forms of life are, they really are are synergistic with each other and are able to help regenerate life and biodiversity. Again, not going to paint a broad stroke, but just the general picture. So, yeah, in terms of healing ourselves, I think healing ourselves is critical to healing the planet. Because when people are burned out, for example, with this current system that's driving people to work longer hours for less pay, when people aren't even able to meet their basic kitchen table needs of putting food on the table, then they're not going to have the capacity to think longer term about how they can contribute to environmental or cultural issues. And they literally just have to worry about surviving. So I think it's important for people in the sustainability space to recognize how integral things like economic justice and social justice and racial justice are and healing communities that are currently targeted and harmed and the most marginalized, because ultimately it's all connected. The degradation and harms and assaults done to the land are directly tied to how this society is treating its most marginalized peoples. And so if we're really talking about sustainability and healing our earth, then we have to heal ourselves so that we have the capacity to contribute more to the movement and then certainly think about how we can support the healing of communities that have been historically harmed Hmm. thank you for sharing
0: and so I just also was curious about the 300 episodes that you've done on your podcast what were some of the biggest lessons or things that you unlearned or things that you had to relearn during that process and I guess again with your personal journey going through all of that knowledge and how you've maybe confronted some of your own yeah and and sort of healed yourself through that process too
1: yeah so i think there's one term that really comes to mind as i think about the core theme of what i've learned and it's biocultural diversity and what this term refers to is basically how there's an aligning trend of biodiversity loss cultural diversity loss and language diversity loss but it's really not a coincidence because all of these things are tied and they really should be one and the same. So, a lot of people in the environmental movement primarily focus on biodiversity loss and things happening in the ecological realm. But if we think about how cultures have emerged from place, and specifically indigenous cultures have emerged from place, and traditional ecological knowledge have also emerged from place. And if we think about how diverse our landscapes are across the planet, how the species native to every region is so different than the ones that are native to other places, and also how indigenous languages and vocabulary also emerge from place, it becomes really clear that in order to regenerate and restore our degraded lands, we need to look to indigenous leadership and uh, indigenous communities that still have these place-based knowledge in terms of what it means to heal these very specific ecosystems. So I think that's really important. And by having this sort of realization, what I've come to see is that our solutions aren't going to come from a lot of these one-size-fits-all approaches that are being pushed or that get the most hype. So there's not going to be one diet that is literally best for the planet because it's, it's important to contextualize with the bioregion that you're talking about, or it's important to contextualize with cultural history as well. So yeah, just there's not going to be a one size fits all approach to anything. And even when people look to things like ecological impact assessments and look at this crop uses this amount of water to grow, that crop uses that amount of water to grow, none of that really matters because it's not about the most sustainable, it's about the best fit for this specific bioregion. So cotton, for example, requires a lot of water to grow, but that becomes less relevant if we're talking about that cotton being grown in a region where it's bioregionally appropriate to grow in, where it naturally rains a lot, and therefore the water use is, is not as relevant because the water is there. Compared to that cotton being grown in a region that doesn't rain a lot and you have to import that water from elsewhere in order to grow. And then also, it's also different if we're talking about land that is really degraded and dried up where every time it rains, the water just runs off because the land is so dried up that it can't absorb the water compared to land that is really healthy and the vegetation there have extensive root systems and deep root systems so that the land can act like a sponge. And so every time it rains, it can hold that water really well. And so this context shows how limiting these ecological impact assessments are when they only say that, you know, this, um, this requires this amount of water. Well, let's contextualize that with the bioregion we're talking about and contextualize that with the health of the ecosystem that we're talking about and whether there is a functioning and healthy water cycle that's there. So, yeah, it's really important to contextualize everything, really prioritize and uplift place based solutions and certainly the leadership of indigenous environmental leaders as well. Mm. And how do you think that we can live wide awake? I, I love I love the phrase. I think I would go back to it needing to start from our own selves. So being really attuned to our bodily needs, because when all of our senses are functioning optimally, because we've really nourished our bodies and taken care of ourselves and listened to our own needs. Then we're going to have the capacity to be more in tune with the needs of other people around us. We're going to be more sensitive to how our loved ones are feeling, whether there are certain needs that we can help support. We're going to be more attuned to the struggles that our communities are facing and how we can support that. We're going to be more attuned to how our ecosystems and landscapes are doing and how we can then support that. So I think it really starts with our personal selves and being able to listen to our bodies and meet our own basic needs first and foremost, so that it will empower us to be able to detect and listen more deeply to everything else around us in the greater world. Yes,
0: absolutely. Inside out jobs. That's what we need to do. (laughs) Well, that's awesome. Thank you. Well, Kamea, thank you so much. It was such a wonderful time speaking to you. I learned so much. You're so wise and so much wisdom that you've learned and just, yeah, really interesting perspective on everything. So thank you for taking the time to share with us.
1: Of course. Thank you for having me.
0: Three things I'm taking away from this conversation with Kamea. Firstly, we need to maintain a healthy skepticism and a critical eye and not automatically trust all the information that is presented to us. Secondly, we can build power from the ground up. Collectively, we can change things. We just need to play our part and focus where it counts. Thirdly, each of us has a role to play as part of Earth. We are part of the natural world and system. I hope that today's conversation stirred something deep within you ready to awaken. If you enjoyed today's episode, do hit that subscribe button and consider supporting us. Until next time, live wide
1: awake.